Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. My guest today is returning to this podcast. If you have seen previous episodes, he was in both the Ancient Rhodes episodes. I like the word complicated. So, so uh, please welcome Eric Tiller. And uh, the reason, if you haven't, if the episode is not clear, is if the title of the episode is not clear, it's called Drunk History. That's because we're drinking tonight with alcohol, like grown-ups, real grown-ups do. <laughs> and uh, I guess, I guess my first. How have you been? How have you been since the last time? Well, we've been uh, quite busy. We've uh, continued trying to deal with this uh, global pandemic. And uh, thus, uh, much of the education of late has been in exactly this form, online. Though it's slightly less alcohol. With the... Uh, I, I want to ask, with all, with all the situation, the pandemic and everything, you have been locked down and on Zoom recently. Mm. Do you find that the students that do have to do this through Zoom is easier to work with or do you think find them more or less that they're less paying 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 less attention to to class through soon well firstly it depends on the form of the assignments and the topic but uh, the one thing that is uh, missing out in the online teaching is the direct social interactions Uh, you lose some of the spontaneity that you would otherwise have in a classroom but uh, I know I want to ask again with this pandemic going on. And we don't talk about this because our, the point of this podcast is mainly history, and we we like to say that history repeats itself. That's a term that a lot of historians, and I would say myself, use as well. And with the pandemic, it's not just it's not just it's less than hundred almost hundred years ago now, almost less than hundred years. But the Spanish flu happened, and this was during the World War as well as upon a global international pandemic. So, but don't you think, and with the Black Plague previous to that, so don't you think that with what a lot of the jobs should we have learned by now how to handle the situation? And don't you think a lot of history have indeed repeated itself? When, when one look at how a lot of the governments have handled the situation that uh, that happened. Well, last we year. can uh, divide this discussion into two. Firstly, how we've actually learned from previous pandemics. Uh, there are some examples there I can bring up, but also the uh, entire idea of history history repeating itself because that is uh, something that. Uh, can uh, throw most historians off on a rant, and that is exactly what's going to happen. Um, 
But of what we've learned from previous uh, pandemics, uh, we can start with the Black Plague. Um, one of the main measures that have been uh, used against uh, the current pandemic has been the quarantine. And that is something that uh, stems from uh, the Italian experience with the plague, uh, especially in Venice, where they had um, uh, designated islands where they actually isolated people who brought the plague to the city. Uh, they were supposed to be there for 40 days, hence the term quarantine. Uh, so some of the measures that we are using today stem from that uh, initial, or not initial, uh, but from the experience with the Black Plague. Yes, that's where but, quarantine comes from, right? The word mm. quarantine is Italian and comes from the Black Plague. Mm. When the shipment, shippers had to quarantine for two weeks in yeah. Italy. Yeah, and uh, some of those facilities were quite uh, impressive. Not only did they isolate uh, the people, but they also scoured the entire ships. Uh, in one of the cases, they even constructed an entire shipyard to put, take the ships apart and then put them back together after cleaning it. So some of the measures were in place quite early. But, but again, I want to ask because when I study a little bit, not studied in the way you study history, but I want just looked at looked it up more or less. And uh, what I found was back in 1918, mm. governments really downplayed how dangerous the Spanish flu is. And we see this again with the with COVID-19 that people, the governments downplay, no, no, it's not dangerous, it's just normal flu. It's not, you're not gonna die of this. It's not, it's not as dangerous as it really is. So. Don't you see the history repeating itself there? Don't you see that? Well, I see a certain pattern that repeats itself, namely that it uh, differs from country to country. Uh, the situation at the end of the First War was, of course, that the press was under uh, quite uh, heavy restrictions in what they could publish, uh, mostly to uh, avoid ruining the, ruining the morale back home at the home front. So when the pandemics first started to spread, uh, one of the considerations was that, all right, we've just been through a devastating war. Uh, let's not uh, cause even more, uh, what should we say, uh, bad feelings on the home front. Let's uh, try to make sure that people keep the morale up. Um, interestingly, that is where the name the Spanish flu comes from because the Spanish press did not have the same restrictions, uh, meaning uh, the Spanish press was the first uh, press where this, uh, uh, what should we say, outbreak was reported. Uh, thus, people started associating it with Spain. Uh, it did not begin in Spain. That is not why we call it the Spanish flu. We call it the Spanish flu because the Spanish press uh, was the first to actually report uh, on it. Right. And... Uh... And that's a little bit about modern history and repeating history, but I, I don't think we went into this last time. What is your main profession when it comes to history? What is your main study? What and why did you choose history as an academic profession? 
Well, I actually find history to be one of the greatest studies in how human beings actually work. Uh, because history as uh, a discipline is the amassed uh, human experience. It's all the case studies of uh, what do people do in given situations. Uh, sometimes they act uh, well as expected, while in other cases they do things that are quite unexpected. And that brings us into what we mentioned about history repeating itself, uh, because um, most historians will actually tell you that it does not repeat itself. Um, and I can explain this. Um, this is uh, sort of an example that most people know about in Scandinavia, uh, the play by Ludwig Holberg, uh, Erasmus Montanus. In that play, there's this famous um, segment where the protagonist, uh, Erasmus, uh, who has been uh, studying rhetorics and um, argumental theory, uh, claims that uh, his mother cannot fly and a stone cannot fly. Hence, his mother is a stone because both have the same qualities. That in terms of rhetoric is what we call a false analogy because we only look at the similarities, but we disregard all the differences. And that is the case in many instances where we claim that history repeats itself because we can see a lot of similarities, but most of the things, for instance, the backdrop, the causes that led up to that point are quite different. But uh, what we can see is that uh, certain patterns of human behavior can repeat itself. Uh, for instance, one of the most uh, uh, dangerous elements that we can uh, see in history is a uh, dissatisfied working class. Uh, we've seen that, for instance, in um, uh, Germany um, in the years prior. I want prior. to ask you about this because do you think it's fair to compare Trump to Hitler as money does? Do you think it's fair to compare him to like what he, the same qualities that Hitler had because the working class is upset with the rich folks and, and Trump is oh, we're gonna make the murder great again. We don't want to make working class worth worth it again, etc. Do you think it's fair to compare Trump to Hitler? Well, yes and no. Um, again, this is about the analogy thing. Um, and I actually had this discussion with my history class uh, this very week where we were working with uh, the ideology, the ideas behind fascism. And the main question the students asked, uh, uh, is Trump a fascist? And uh, here again, it's complicated. Here we go. <laughs> um, but- um, I can drink every time you said complicated. Yeah, I will. <laughs> but my point here is that uh, uh, Trump is not a political thinker. He does not have any core ideology. Uh, if we were to describe him, he's an opportunist, uh, a narcissistic opportunist, uh, but uh, not a fascist because uh, he's not uh, that into the heavy political ideology. However, many of the qualities that he professes, uh, for instance, um, uh, the disdain for weakness uh, and the admiration for strength, for greatness, and also the very uh, heavy ethnocentric nationalism, 
uh, those are traits that we find within fascist ideology. Do you think so, you praise on on the so-called weak people like Hitler did? He preyed upon the weak people because of if you if you look at that, uh, Hitler knew that the people after Versailles, the treaty of Versailles, that, that mm -hmm. people they were not happy. They were just that economy were failing. Mm -hmm. He knew that they could prey upon the weak weak people of Germany. Well, that is not the same weakness, but uh, what I'm talking about here is uh, the disdain for weakness and the celebration of strength. If you look at his rhetoric throughout his entire presidency and even before the presidency, um, whenever he is in opposition to someone, he immediately calls them weak. And he also tries to cultivate this image of himself as strong. Um, that alone does not make him a fascist, but those are parts of the fascist ideology. So while Trump himself is not a fascist, uh, much of what he represents are qualities that makes him attractive to people who are more into fascist ideologies. And I want to ask you about this because if anyone has, if this happened a few years ago, so if anyone's seen Joe Rogan, of course, most, most 90% of people have. Mm. And it's, so it's a, it's a, he had it just a while ago, and it's been a, a few times now. He's called Brett Weinstein, Weinstein, mm. not to be compared to Harvey Weinstein, mm. but he he has seen uh, more. He he would be condemned by his fellow students, not fellow students, but by his students, mm. because he's deemed a racist, and this caused more to the term of kidnapping in the school. If I, I, I would like to call it kidnapping because that's more or less what it was, mm -hmm. because it's a world ideology today. And I want to ask, do you think, because we both live in Norway and we both live in more or less free, yeah, cozy homes compared to America. We both have freedoms, which we mm -hmm. all both enjoy qualities that mo most Americans don't. But do you see this this thing that happened at Evergreen University happen in Norway? Uh, no, uh, not really. And the core of that is that uh, the American experience is um, quite different from Norwegian ones. I will come into that very soon. Um, but um, first of all, uh, the what should we say triggering event was of course uh, this uh, day was, which was supposed to mark uh, support for the black students that all those of a different color should keep away from campus. Um, what I think was the mistake they did there was that uh, that sort of activity is not uncommon uh, in, for instance, sociology classes. Uh, the mistake was that they expanded it to the entire campus, but I see the point that they tried to make but they try to make it in a very crude manner uh, because the same thing has been done in sociology classes, uh, but they expanded it to a scale where uh, people missed the point of it. And that, of course, caused uh, inflammatory feelings on both sides. But uh, as for the American experience, there is something unique about it. Uh, just a moment. Cheers. I need a drink before getting into this because um, 
Um, the core of this is the American slavery. And what I mean about that is the uniqueness of the American slavery. Now, slavery has existed uh, for many, many years. Uh, it's been a part of many ancient societies. But uh, the American slavery is distinct for one particular reason. And that is because the status as a slave was linked to race and not to social standing. If we compare throughout the history, uh, if we look at, um, for instance, the Roman slavery, um, people of any creed or any kind of people from across the Roman Empire or even beyond the Roman Empire could become a slave. But also... It's just a matter of conquest. Yeah. But any slave could also be freed and become a Roman citizen. That was a possibility. Uh, compared to the Norse thraldom, uh, keeping thralls. Uh, the same thing can be said there. They did not discriminate on who they took as slaves, uh, but they also kept the door open for uh, granting those slaves their liberties. Uh, the same can be said in the Arab or the Muslim slavery along the coast of North Africa. I want to touch about Muslim. Yeah, yeah. they did not. Yeah, but let me finish this argument. Of course. Uh, they did not really care whether the slaves came from the inner parts of Africa or if they were people from the east or if they were captured sailors from the north. Uh, to them, the slavery depended on social status. And again, there were ways out of slavery. You could be bought out of slavery or you could simply convert to Islam and then no longer be a slave. Uh, the common trait here is that Slavery was a social status, not something directly linked to the race. But when we come to the American slavery, we see that slavery becomes inadvertently linked with the race. This not just in who, was, who were the slaves, but also in that uh, measures were put in place to prevent slaves from being freed. Everything from heavy taxation on freeing slaves to laws that actually made it possible to enslave freedmen who were in certain states for a certain time. And that is sort of the legacy uh, that's still not been resolved in the US. I guess you can see that with the George Floyd case that happened mm -hmm. last year. Yeah, that is just one of a long string of examples. And that link between slavery and race, uh, which is a uniquely American experience, is something that's uh, still a, what should we say, dividing issue in the US today. And that is also what makes sort of the American experience unique in that um, it cannot truly be compared to slaveries that have occurred in other civilizations across the world even those that were contemporary, like the North African slavery, uh, which uh, was ongoing at the same time as the American slavery. Uh, yes, both were slavery, but if you look at the core of it, uh, those were two different entities. Right. And, uh, and I want to ask, because I feel like having, I'm, I'm the reason, just recently started that more or less not studying in the same way you do, but study history in mm -hmm. more detailed manner. And I find, and I was, I think most like most white people in the West view mm -hmm. Islam as this backwards 
religion where people don't think think that Islam is this totally controversial mm. religion. But I, I don't think that's the thing at all because you see, if you follow follow history like you you and me, like re, me recently and you have studied it a long a long time. I think Islam is one of the most foregoing and understanding because Islam is one of those that actually accept other religions and they're curious about other religions and they're as fantastic astronomers as you can see in the Arabic Arabic religions. And what, what do you think make Islam this? This is because of radical Islamists. You think that that's kind of ruined the Islamic reputation, if you will. Well, uh, here we have to look at uh, several different points in time. Uh, firstly, uh, the late 70s, uh, or the 70s overall, uh, not just in um, the Middle East, but also further to the East, uh, for instance, Afghanistan. Um, and what was happening in the Islamic world at that time was uh, uh, an overarching process of uh, secularization. Uh, but that led to a major religious backlash, which uh, paid way for more extremist, um, what should we say, branches of the religion. And uh, another thing that uh, we should mention um, when it comes to at least the Middle East is that we are, just like with um, many parts of Africa, looking at a post-colonial situation. Um, because uh, what's not really known to many uh, who haven't studied history is that uh, after the First World War, uh, despite the promises to the Arab leaders, um, the Middle East was basically taking, taken as a colony. Now, they call well, it a they protectorate. basically screwed Arabic countries over. Yeah, uh, they called it a protectorate, uh, though it was basically a colony, only they didn't call it that because the word colony was a bit iffy, even at that point. Yeah, we all know. And what they did was that they drew new borders in the region, um, just like they had done in Africa in uh, 1884. The straight lines dividing families, yeah. dividing children. So they did a Berlin Conference version two on the Middle East. Um, and what that resulted in was that many groups uh, within that region who otherwise were in disagreement were now clustered together within the same borders. And when the British and the French uh, eventually left the area, uh, those conflicts remained and it became an internal power struggle. So many of these areas where we see conflicts and we blame it on religion, the religion is not the issue. Uh, the issue is that uh, these uh, areas are the subject of a post-colonial reality. Uh, in which uh, the state-making process has not been uh, done thoroughly. As a result, uh, we see many armed conflicts. And this is just the sort of environment that uh, both uh, causes uh, some uh, parties to become more radicalized, uh, but it also means that uh, those uh, radicalized groups have uh, the room to thrive. It is not the kind of stable society that uh, uh, would otherwise prevent those radical directions. And when people think of Islam, they of course think about the Middle East, 
but most Muslims actually live in Southeast Asia. Uh, so the perception uh, that uh, most Westerners have of uh, uh, Islam as this uh, brutal um, warlike religion uh, mostly stems because uh, the region in which most are familiar with Islam being the main religion uh, has been left in such a state due to the post-colonial experience. And again, this brings us into the topic of narratives and uh, perception. For instance, uh, the opposition to the establishment of Israel in that area. Uh, we may see the uh, Arab opposition to it as uh, an example of uh, anti-Semitism, but uh, to the, what should we say, Arab parties, that would be more an opposition to yet another example of uh, Western colonization in the area. Right. That they suddenly placed a new nation with new borders in the middle of an area without consulting them. So that would, for them, just be a continuation of the colonialism that we saw after the First World War. And I think that when you look at the, especially the Ottoman Empire, I think the, the only, you know the only reason the Hagia Sophia is still existing today is because Nachmed II is was so awaited by the church that he turned into a mosque. And I think it's, it just is, I, I respect tremendously a lot the Ottoman Empire because they still respected the religion. They were still, unlike Christianity at the time, they still respect the religion that you could still have your religion, your belief, mm -hmm. but we would, you could never, you could of course not be a part of the government, mm -hmm. but you were still able to have your religion. And I think that's a, one of the saddest things that I would see today that, that religion is, Christianity is this good guy and Islam and everything else and all the others religion is the bad guy in, in a sense in, in Western Europe or in Western in the Western world that we don't, I don't think we teach enough, enough of the other religions in mm. school to know, to learn that they were, the other religions aren't bad. They, they just, but yeah, I think that's one of the most misconceptions of history that we know. And I, I want to know what you think about this. Well, I've also been teaching in religion uh, in school, so I can uh, assure you that we do look into all of these facets of the religion, uh, both how they share some certain common course, but also how religion in any form can become radicalized. And that the radicalization is not essentially a core of the religion itself, but very often external circumstances. But uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Ottoman Empire because that is uh, sort of a good entry point to understanding how we present history. And that is the narrative. Uh, history is a narrative. Uh, you can ask any historian then they will tell you the same. Uh, we have all these facts and figures like uh, this many people lived in that area for uh, that long time and uh, they paid this and that much in taxes, but that is not history. Uh, it becomes history when we put it all together into a certain narrative. And that is often where the misunderstandings uh, show up. And one of the greatest examples of how a narrative can be both shaped and also falsified is- uh, a winner, isn't it? Yeah, not just that, uh, but also in what you include. Uh, you probably heard about uh, the siege of Vienna. Yeah. Uh, 
the siege that also inspired the very the Ottoman, the right-wing uh, extremist page, the Gates the of the Ottoman Empire. Ottoman Empire siege, yeah. yeah. And I often use that as a good example to show how narratives can differ depending on what you include. Now, if you look at the siege of Vienna, uh, was the attacking force, the Ottomans, uh, predominantly Muslim? Yeah. Uh, were the besieged and also the relief force from the Christian band, uh, mostly Christian? Well, yeah, they were. And so far, at this point, it adds up to the narrative that this was a great war between Christians and Muslims. But then we need to look at who it was that financed, who actually paid for the Ottoman campaign. And that was Catholic France. And suddenly the entire narrative of uh, Christians versus Muslims fall apart because uh, the campaign against the Christian city was paid for by other Christians. Speaking of Christians, I want to, I want to address something. And uh, I think that we all learn history, especially from my school. We learn that like Christians, yay, the Crusades, yay, they're going to take back Jerusalem, yay. But when you look at it in the, from a different history, historical perspective, it, the, the, it was all a mistake. It, the Crusades were a mistake. So how do you feel about the Crusades personally? Uh, opinion, it was more or less a mistake that the, because you know, if you remember the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, he tried, he just won the, just a few thousand people, mm -hmm. but instead the Pope sent 100,000 troops back to there, back to Jerusalem and back to the Middle East. So how do you feel about the Crusades personally? Well, I think, again, the Crusades are misunderstood. Uh, yes, there was the religious fever that made people go there and uh, slay the heathens as they would profess it. But uh, the same thing that we see with the Siege of Vienna is something that we can see in the Crusades, mm -hmm. namely that you also use these uh, major religious movements as uh, pieces in uh, grand politics. Uh, for instance, um, we all know of the sack of Constantinople by the Crusaders. Uh, I think it was during the Fourth Crusade. And uh, that is similar to what we see with uh, the Siege of Vienna, where uh, the Ottoman force is uh, backed up financially by Catholic France. And that is a struggle between different parties within Europe. Uh, in the case of uh, Constantinople, it was between the East and the West, or the East and the Western part of the Roman Empire, or the former Roman Empire at that point. And uh, with the Siege of Vienna, we have the struggle between France and the Habsburger Empire, who at that point were basically surrounding France in terms of territories. So while there's a certain religious element to it, we can't disregard that there are also dynastic elements to it. I don't know if you've seen that. Did you what, listen to the episode where I had about the Byzantine Empire when I had episodes? The one right after you were on? Uh, no, I haven't had the time for that. Uh, because the guy that I had on, I think, if I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I, if I don't want to listen, you know, listen to the episodes. Mm -hmm. That were on about the Byzantine Empire. I apologize if uh, I miss quotes right now, but he made he had a theory that the West, the modern West, did not begin 
until the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is all because the Byzantine Empire, the Crusades, again, because of the, the, the West were, and the Crusade robbed Constantinople and the West through Jerusalem, Bethlehem, etc. All these religi religious cities. And, uh, and we talked about this yesterday, but I yeah. want to your opinion on this podcast. What do you think about this, that the Renaissance is all because of the Crusades and all because the robberies of the, and that the modern West did not begin until the Renaissance? What do you think about this? Well, I both agree and disagree. Again, oh, here we go. It's complicated. Who's from the chair, Smith? Um, firstly, that the Renaissance started the, what should you say, modern Europe. Culturally, it did. But politically, we need to go back further. Uh, and that is to the uh, state-making process in the high Middle Ages. Uh, if you look at uh, a map of Europe in the 1100s, uh, you can see quite a few familiar names. You can see Norway, you can see Sweden, you can see Denmark, you can see England, you can see France, you can see Spain. All of this is because these countries underwent a certain state-making process that is actually quite easy to identify, and which also overlaps. You can see, for instance, that uh, after the civil wars in Norway, that the uh, Svedia dynasty actually used many of the methods of uh, King Philip II of France uh, in order to shape the Norwegian experience. So the political Europe as we know it, uh, at least Northwestern Europe, uh, begins in the early thousands with the medieval state-making process. Um, but culturally, uh, what we've come to know as uh, European culture uh, has more to do with the Renaissance. Now, what triggered the Renaissance? That's an interesting question. And again, wow, this is going to hurt my liver. It's complicated. <laughs> but it was about several factors coming together at the same time. Uh, Constantinople certainly had a part to play in it. Uh, not due to the Crusades, but due to uh, the siege of Constantinople and the, uh, well, fall of it, which led many of the craftsmen of Constantinople to flee west to Italy. But uh, they wouldn't have had sort of, what should we say, a fertilized ground in which to thrive if it wasn't for another development that had happened in the late Middle Ages, and that was the expansion of trade networks. And this is not just something that happened to the Italian states, it's also something we can see also in Europe. We can see the early rise of the Dutch areas, the Netherlands, and we can also see it in Northern Germany with the German Hansa. So we have this... The Hans came from East Asia, didn't they? Not the Hans, but the Hansa. Oh, yeah. German Hansa. Oh, sorry, my mistake. I missed it. Yeah. For... yeah, because all those are examples of uh, expansive trade networks and trade organizations. And that is something that's developing independently of what's happening in Constantinople, but with all the craftsmen and all the expertise fleeing Constantinople and landing in Italy in this 
environment of economic growth. Uh, that is sort of the mixture that makes uh, sort of the Renaissance uh, come to be. Yeah, right. I, I want to ask you a little bit different question now. Um, uh, what is a favorite historical movie that's been made? My favorite historical movie. That's a, a movie or TV show. Movie or TV show. That is a sort of, of a difficult one uh, because I'm sort of an omnivore there. Um, one that I particularly like is uh, a royal affair, uh, which chronicles. Uh, uh, the Struense era in Denmark between 1770 and 1772. Um, of course, the film is marketed as this romantic drama, but uh, what it's in fact about is about um, the first attempt to take the ideas of the Enlightenment and putting them into political practice. Uh, of course, Struense did it in such a manner that uh, he ended up getting executed, but uh, this is sort of the precursor to the revolutions that we see in later years. And why there are some, why there are some flaws to the movie, uh, there are also many things to get right. And you can clearly see that the filmmakers were asked to make this big romantic period drama, but they wanted to focus on the political aspect because um, many of the uh, decrees that we can see are downright exact copies of the ones that were made uh, during the period. I've been to the archive in Copenhagen, actually seen the originals. So it's quite fun to see how they actually translated this political movement under Dr. Struensen. Just keep talking, I'll be right back. Just keep talking. Well, just be right back as well. Right back. This is from I'll apologize for that. I just had to take a kiss break. I'm back now. It's okay. Uh, this is drunk history. Uh, I'm back. And yeah, uh, he seems to be out at the moment. I just had to take a piss break. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, I don't know where he is right now. There you are. I just had to take a piss break. I mean, I've been drinking beer for the last uh, half hour. So. Well just the same. <laughs> this is the line. I'm not the Good coordination. That is thing. This is drunk history, mate. I just <laughs> yeah, but like uh, yeah, what what was it was you talking talking about the Danish movie? Uh, yeah, the Royal Affair. Uh, that's a fairly good movie if you want to understand uh, the first major attempt to introduce the ideas of the <laughs> Enlightenment. But. Uh, other movies and shows that like is, for instance, um, uh, Barry Lyndon and also HBO's Rome. Um, I actually want to point out that my, my personal favorite, and this is one that came out this year, 
Yeah. If you've seen Netflix Barbarians. I have seen the Barbarians. Oh, I love that. That's a fantastic show. It's a TV show, but that is fantastic. And I really respect the director because usually you see that the Romans have this British, fine, posh British accent. But in the, I, one of the reasons I respect the series so much, and I want to do an own episode about series and about the events that happened during that time, because it, the, the, the actors actually went the length to learn Latin. And it sounds like legit Latin to me, because I'm, I haven't studied Latin language or anything. So I can say, but for me, that they actually went the next step to talk Latin language. That is, that was just mind blowing to me. And it was just, wow. That's, that's one of the reasons it's one of my favorite historical dramas at the moment. And uh, I did mention Barry Lyndon and Rome. Uh, while there are certainly some things that I, that can be critiqued, uh, both those that movie and that show does something that uh, many people try to avoid when it comes to making historical drama, and that is giving the characters the mindset of the period. Uh, I can vividly recall when my mother stumbled across Rome on television. She was shocked because as a she said, they are all terrible people. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's the Roman mindset for you. They were actually quite terrible people. To be fair, though, that, uh, mm. I can't seem to remember his name right now. Uh, I, I've been drinking, to be fair. Nero, Nero did try to kill his mother, to be mm. fair. So you make and- sense of the terrible people. And it's the same you can see in Barry Lyndon that, uh, yeah, these are terrible people, but they, in many ways, reflect the mindset of uh, that time. And that is something that many historical dramas shy away from, that they sort of inject very modern values into their protagonists to make them more edible to the audience. Uh, But uh, in the end, it only distracts from the very ideas of that period. How do you feel, speaking of Rome, how do you feel about uh, Gladiator? We touched briefly about this in the last episode that you were on. About what? Gladiator with Russell Russell Crowe. And how do you feel about it personally? And now it's Uh, a historical, accurate movie, but how do you feel about it? As a movie, it's uh, high craftsmanship. Uh, You have good acting and one thing I like about Gladiator is the structure. Uh, it is among those very few near perfectly structured movies, uh, but it's not a historical movie. Uh, it should have ended with uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Russell Crowe in a bathtub. But um, as a movie on its own, it's very entertaining and it's very well made, uh, despite being uh, well, a bucket load of historical inaccuracies, not just in the events, but also in the equipment and the tactics and everything. Also the gladiator battles as well. So when it comes to historical movies and television, you need to be aware of what you're watching. Are you watching something that tries to depict the area as it was, or if it's something that's made for entertainment? But uh, one one thing I want to ask, when you study history, what... 
What surprised you the most? Like something that wow, that's that's mind blowing. What, what, what was the most surprising thing about the study when you studied history in more? What uh, really surprised me uh, was oh, I need to prepare the battle. How complicated <laughs> things were. Uh, going into archives from the 1700s, it was very surprising how advanced these people actually were. And that is something, uh, a term that I often used, and that's uh, chronoracism. The idea that uh, people back in the old, good old days were just blatantly stupid and uh, believed that uh, yeah, leprechauns would come and eat their socks. But that's not the case. Um, if you look at uh, things that have been written all the way from antiquity and up to modern times, you see that the old societies in many ways were just as complicated and advanced as ours. So, and that means uh, when you go into study history, you should never underestimate uh, the people of the past uh, because their brain capacities were pretty much just the same as ours. And when you look at the sources, uh, not just the secondary sources in form of history books, but the first-hand sources, things that they wrote, you can clearly see that these were quite intelligent people. And at times you can actually be quite surprised in their insights and their ingenuity. And uh, yeah, something else, actually, when I read, I don't know if you read the book, The Rise and Third, Fall of the Third Reich by William Allen Shriver, which I highly recommend if you haven't, because it's an amazing book. And uh, I haven't read it, but um, Nazi Germany is sort of something you should know if you've studied history. Right. Yeah, but what, what surprised me was that there was surprisingly a lot of politics involved when Germany tried to involve Austria and uh, hmm. Czechoslovakia in, into the Reich. That it was surprising a lot of politics in, in, that was involved in the decision. It wasn't just like as we, when I, when I was in secondary school, what we told them basically that. Oh, they caused a lot of trouble in Austria. They were welcome in Austria, and then they just basically waltz over. Mm. But that is not the case. There was a lot of politics involved, mm. and I think that's some of the things that surprised me the most when I yeah. read the book. And it was just wow. Yeah, and again, that is something I talked about with my students uh, this very week is that most people think of the fascists and the Nazi party as the outliers of Europe at that time. But actually, authoritarian regimes were the norm in the interwar years in Europe. Uh, the democracies actually became a minority in that period. So this, this is kind of a dumb question, but yeah. do you have a favorite empire, like favorite empire? One of you know, when do you have a weakness when it comes to studying history? What is your passion when it comes to it? Well, I am sort of an a historical omnivore. Uh, you often end up being that when you teach in school. But um, 
one of the things that fascinate me the most is the Habsburger Empire. Justin, how large it became, not just by conquest, but simply by intermarriage. Uh, of course, that led to some other issues like interbreeding. Um, for instance, you have the Habsburger chin, <laughs> which is uh, sort of the genetic defect that uh, even rednecks can't achieve. <laughs> but uh, the way they became a very dominant force in Europe uh, is quite impressive. And also that they are mostly disregarded when we think about big empires. We think about those that were forged uh, through conquest. But uh, the Habsburg Empire was forged through close political and uh, marital connections. And that sort of made them go under the radar. But even so, they controlled a fairly vast portion of Europe. I think for me, it's... Uh... If you would have asked me a year ago, it would have been ancient. The answer would have been ancient Rome. Mm. Just, just I was there in I think 2017. Mm. I just touching the walls of Colosseum was amazing, and just being mm. watching Pompeii and this foreign city, these foreign cities was amazing. And learning about them, but I would say now it's the Ottoman Empire because I'm just fascinated by. By the empire, and I'm again. I have tremendous amount of respect for for the empire because they had so much respect for other religions as well. As not just that it was not just Islam, Islam or die. Not like at least in I don't know how it went in the rest of Europe, but in Norway, as you know, it was either be Christian or die. Yeah. But the Christian, but the Ottoman Islam was not like that at all. They were curious and they were fascinated mm -hmm. by other religions. Yeah, and that's what one of the reasons I respect the the Ottoman Empire so much. Yeah. Speaking of that, there was this video on YouTube uh, a few months ago that asked the questions: Why wasn't there any crusades to the Scandinavian countries? Because we know one of the first crusades was against the Baltic states and to convert the heathens there by the Teutonic Order. And the video asked, uh, well, why didn't this happen in Scandinavia? And the reason for this is the process of christening in Norway and Sweden, which was quite brutal, uh, same in Denmark. So while it didn't happen in the form of crusade, uh, many of the same methods that you see in a crusade were utilized. And uh... Yeah, I, I want to ask what, how do you feel? I wanted to ask you about the Japanese empire because that's one of the, another thing I want to read that I just recommended actually. I was talking about previous guests, mm. it was on when we talked about the Cold War, James Belfry, and he recommended this book called The Sun, the Rise of the and Fall of the Japanese Empire. And while they very much are what I would regard the villain of the story. You don't respect them so much. Respect them because they did come from a from an uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know they were uns they weren't civilized if you would call it that way. They came from an uncivilized civilization to being one of the most industrialized countries in the world um, because they were built by the United States, of course, but. You still don't respect them for becoming so from being nothing in a sense, 
becoming this world domination power. Yeah. Well, how uh, do you feel about the Japanese empire yourself? Uh, that is again a topic that I've been working with my students on, namely, how do we perceive the Japanese empire? And first of all, we need to understand where it came from. Um, and uh, if you are to understand uh, the Japanese experience, we need to understand the Chinese experience. Uh, because the Chinese were basically chopped to bits uh, by all the Western colonial powers. And when the Americans then arrived in Japan, uh, we got this counter-reaction in the form of the Meiji reforms. Um, I like to think that those reforms were highly inspired by just the, having observed the Chinese experience that, uh, yeah, these people came to their country and they picked it apart. So the way the Japanese avoided the same fate as China was to industrialize and basically mimic the Western powers for good and bad. And the Japanese have often been characterized as very brutal in their approach. But uh, if you look at the colonial history in both India and in China, you can see that what the Japanese are doing is basically mimicking um, the European approach to imperialism. Because if you read history, you know that industrialization is the key to any success mm. in economical development in a country. Yeah, uh, the Japanese industrialization is quite unique in how fast it happened. But uh, most people just say, yeah, they industrialized like the West and well, that's it. But no, uh, their methods of imperialism, the brutality in which they are often branded with later is just the same brutality that you see that the European powers display time and time again in Asia. So again, calling the Japanese inherently brutal in the imperial circumstances becomes sort of, well, a reflection of ourselves because they were simply doing the same thing that the European powers had already been doing for 50 years in the same area. Right. For instance, the European culling of the Taiping rebellion in China, the death toll by some estimates, these are not certain estimates, but by some estimates are nearly double those of the First World War. So what we are seeing is that uh, the Japanese did not only get inspired by the European industrialism, but also the European imperialism in all its brutality. So how can we conclude about that is that the brutality that we see from Imperial Japan is basically just a reflection of the brutality that the Europeans had imposed in Asia in the decades prior. And that is sort of an, an uncomfortable truth that most people shy away from mentioning. And uh, yeah, I think we basically covered a lot, quite a lot in this episode. And I want to thank Eric Tinder for coming back. That was really a fun episode because we both been drinking, we both been under the, under the influence, I suppose. And uh, thank you so much for coming yeah. and uh, being back. This has been that aged well. And mm -hmm. my name is Alan.
Mm -hmm. uh, we are on Instagram under well.hdwell. And uh, do you have anything you want to promote on social media you want to add to the podcast? I can put it in the, in the description below. Nothing that I would promote, but uh, if you are interested in history, uh, try to look for the more uncomfortable parts uh, and try to get the whole picture. Uh, history is complicated. <laughs> But thank you so much for coming back, and you are always welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have a drink, and I hope we get to do this live someday when it's possible, when COVID does not uh, restrict our means. And this has been well done, Eshwal. My name is Alan. I see you next. Please like, share, subscribe. I see you next time. Thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.